welcome to The Scoop. I'm Dinah Jansen. On October 5th, data scientist Francis Hogan testified at the U.S. Senate hearing titled Protecting Kids Online, a testimony that has propelled tech giant Facebook into its deepest scandal to date. And joining us today to talk about Facebook's alleged activities, Hogan's testimony and their impact through the lens of surveillance capitalism is Dr. David Murakami Wood, Associate Professor in Sociology and Director of the Surveillance Studies Centre here at Queen's University. Welcome back to CFRC, David. Thank you. It's great to be here as ever. (laughs) So... David, set the stage for us. Uh, This has been all over the media for the last few days. What happened on Capitol Hill on October 5th and why was a Senate committee convened and how and why did Francis Hogan appear? Well, Francis Hogan is um, basically a whistleblower. She's somebody Mm -hmm. who was a central figure within uh, tech ethics at Facebook and very centrally involved with a lot of different activities both within Facebook, but also on behalf of Facebook with other industry bodies. So she's pretty important and quite senior in this field. Um, And for her to basically resign and then to reveal the reasons why she resigned in public um, is very significant in itself. Now, the thing is, of course, this is not the first scandal that Facebook's had to face. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we're pretty much used to people from Facebook, you know, being forced unwillingly into the lights um, especially in Mark Zuckerberg's, Zuckerberg's case of, you know, being having to give evidence in Congress and sometimes, you know, looking very unwilling to do so. But what we've got in this case is a very different situation. We've got somebody who's a knowledgeable insider spilling the beans, basically, on what goes on inside Facebook. Okay. All right. And, and now, at what personal and professional cost might this have for Francis Hogan, do you think? Well, I think in the immediate term, she's never going to work in this town again. I mean, Facebook. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But, you know, I don't think um, it's not for me to comment really on what her plans are, but I I, I don't think she'll have any problem getting another job, given the number of nonprofits, regulatory bodies and other organizations who will be leaping to employ somebody who has that inside knowledge of Facebook and yet has a critical perspective. So I I don't think her career is in jeopardy in the the broader sense, but she certainly won't be working for Facebook or any of its associates anytime soon. No, and it looks like from what I've seen in the the media world is that uh, Facebook might be launching some uh, lawsuits against her and has already said that she has stolen some of the information, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, well, that's undoubtedly the case. It's a very difficult issue, actually, and I'm not a lawyer, so I'm not going to comment too much on the, the specifics of the of whether theft is possible in terms of, um, you know, open ideas and discussions that have taken place within a corporation. It's a very complicated area. Um, but that in itself, I think, speaks more to Facebook's desperation and its anger than to any kind of rational position about what Hagen is saying. I mean, mm-hmm. she's, she's basically saying that things have gone very badly wrong within Facebook. Um, Facebook has known about the things that have gone wrong for a very long time and has failed to do anything about it, if not actively encouraged the things that are going wrong. So, you know, if I was Facebook, I'd be taking these allegations seriously in a very different way. I I would be trying to do something about what she's talking about uh, and to actually make sure that the things she's saying are dealt with rather than trying to shoot the messenger. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And now, David, from her testimony, she said... Essentially, that Facebook harms kids, it fosters social divisions, political divisions, certainly, and uh, undermines democratic process in the, quote, 
pursuit of breakneck growth and astronomical profits. What are your thoughts on her statements? Well, we all know this is true, right? I mean, yeah. <laughs> in some it's ways, obvious. <laughs> yeah. In some ways, it's not actually even news. I mean, this is why the, the one slightly more cynical set of thoughts I have about this is that, you know, we've had so many of these hearings and we've had so many people saying the same thing and we've had so many media investigations, we've had all kinds of academic reports and we know that Facebook has been involved in everything from enabling Russian intelligence services to try to subvert American elections to fomenting genocide in Myanmar, um, to allowing the rise of far-right groups uh, through things like WhatsApp, um, especially in Brazil, which enabled Bolsonaro to come to power. Mm-hmm. And of course, through things like Instagram and other services, has also preyed on the insecurities of, in this case, what we're talking about was teenage girls and, um, in, you know, actually encouraged, actively encouraged teenage girls to develop harmful attitudes to themselves and their bodies and, you know, all kinds of things like this. It, it's a, you know, it's a whole kind of plethora of, of awful sorts of things. Now, the question is here is, yeah, we know this. But at the same time, you know, I'm, I'm a critic of Facebook. I still have a Facebook account. Mm-hmm. And the reason I do, and I've tried to get off many times, the reason I still do is because it's also an extremely useful communication tool for me to keep in touch with family and friends around the world and even in my local community. And this is the big problem for regulators and for all of us when confronted with Facebook. We know it has these really bad failures, these extremes, which it seems to encourage in order to indeed develop astronomical profits. But at the same time, it's very difficult to imagine a world without social media um, in in terms of how we interact with each other. And however much much we hate Facebook, we also kind of love it. Mm -hmm. However much we hate Instagram, we love it. However much we hate WhatsApp, for many people around the world, it's not even a question of love, it's necessary. That's become the default communication system in many parts of the world. People don't realize in North America how much WhatsApp is actually central to the way people communicate in many parts of the global South. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, Google, sorry, Google, <laughs> Facebook knows this, you know, and that's why it bought WhatsApp. That's why it bought Instagram. You know, it, it wanted to maintain its position in this very competitive world of social media. Um, I think the big question is not so much whether structures like Facebook are wrong in some kind of general moral sense like we can just say because that this happened therefore the entirety of facebook as an idea or as a system is wrong but is it possible to have social media systems that aren't manipulated and controlled by enormous platform corporations whose interest is in making as much money as possible for the tiny percentage of their owners at the very top and to propel them into the you know, the stratosphere of being centi-billionaires and you know, owning mega yachts and everything else. Is it possible to have essentially a kind of communal or cooperative form of social media? So I'd like to learn a little bit more about the actual business model here and yeah. really how Facebook is making its money, if you will. Uh, in a media release, you, you stated that with every prominent whistleblower and every firing of those who speak out, that we're getting closer to the beginning of the end of uh, surveillance capitalism, a model that has driven the rise of platform corporations to their preeminent global positions and generated unprecedented wealth for their founder. So David, tell us more about surveillance capitalism, the structures that maintain or threaten this model, and also really just how the money is being made here. 
Absolutely. Well, it's a very, very complicated and long story. So I'll try mm-hmm. and keep it simple. The term surveillance capitalism specifically in the way that we're using it comes from a Harvard business professor called Shoshana Zuboff, who actually was a visitor to Queens a few years ago and, and, and had a number of brilliant conversations with us while she was here. Um, she basically argued that in the late 90s and early 2000s, scientists at Google, in particular, she starts with Google, studied or discovered that they could actually collect data about their users. And this was originally people uh, who were using search engines, right? Like Google in a normal way. And they, this was, if you like, metadata, data about the, the activities the users were conducting. And then they could collect this data together and use it to construct profiles of those users, package all of these things together and sell that information to marketers so that they could target these people mm-hmm. with advertising. So that's essentially what, and, and, and Zuboff argues, that is surveillance capitalism. It's this, it's this new kind of capitalism that uses surveillance and data gathering to specifically target people uh, with this kind of um, very, very detailed information. So it's like not just targeting you know, generally you know, people who are in the middle class earning bracket B or something, it's actually you. It's me, it's you. You like these things. You search for this stuff. Therefore, you probably like this thing. I um, am reading books about X and therefore I probably like Y. So it's a very specific kind of of, um, targeting. And because of its accuracy and its supposed success in converting our likes into new purchases, uh, this spreads, right? And it turns Google into the largest advertising company in the world, even though it's not an mm-hmm. advertising company. Yeah, that's not what Google fundamentally does or, or did before. Facebook comes along a little bit later, right? So you've got to remember, Facebook's not that old. I mean, it's really only been in the public sphere 15 mm-hmm. years or so. Um, it starts off as something very different. And as I, I was talking to another uh, TV station the other night and reminded the, uh, the interviewer that Facebook started off as a mechanism developed by these bros at Harvard for creeping on girls. It started up as a rating site for Harvard girls. And this, you know, if you think Facebook's a little bit seedy, well, it always has been, right? This is not actually something that's new in that sense at all. And so all these people are saying Facebook's portrayed its founding principles or whatever. It's like, do you realize what its founding principles actually were? (laughs) It's not not what you think they are. Anyway, but Facebook comes along and it, it, it sort of leverages this position of this being this little campus you might call it social media network into then a university system across all universities and then into being a worldwide um, social media network. The first one of the, that we would properly call a social media network in this era. I mean, there was MySpace and others before, but they weren't the same. It basically gobbles up all the opposition. It, It overtakes them. And it does so because it adapts Google's model of surveillance capitalism into Mm -hmm. social media. So it basically monetizes all the data it gathers from all of its users doing all their social things, like all their interactions, whether it's talking to grandma, you know, sharing stuff with friends, putting photos of your holiday up. They can basically gather all of this data and information together and again, package it up and sell it to advertisers. So they then become, after Google, the second largest advertising company in the world at some points, depending on how you measure it. Uh, so both these two companies and Google and Facebook have transformed how we interact online. In theory, at least, we still do things the same, but the big difference is that somebody is making a lot of money out of those things that we do. Um, and they would argue, well, so what? You get our services for free. 
You know, we give you Facebook, we give you Google search, we give you all of these other things and you don't have to pay a cent. And so we just happen to be making the best out of the way you, you use it, right? But this is the really unique thing. You know, and some people, people have really struggled, academics have really struggled with how to understand this. You know, so you get people saying, well, it's free labor. You know, we're working for Facebook or Google. That's a bit hard to sustain because we're not really working, right? This is stuff we'd be doing in our social life. You know, I'm talking to my grandma. I'm not working. Well, maybe sometimes it feels like hard work, but you know, it's not, it's not working, right? This mm -hmm. is my social life. So they're not, it's not work that we're doing for free. It is social relations. It's what we do with our friends and our family, but they're making money at it. They worked out a way of making money out of our social relationships. And that is, you know, it's genius, mm -hmm. right? It's genius, but it's also, you know, the beginning of dystopia in some ways, right? Um, and, and this is just part of, I, th I would say, although Zuboff uses the word surveillance capitalism to refer to this specific thing, I would say it's a much bigger thing than this, in that almost everything out there um, today to do with the way in which we consume, buy, think, uh, act, and so on, in any way, sense in which we use some kind of electronic device to help us do that, that collects data that's commodified. And this now extends into all kinds of places, right? You've got you know, Alexa and Siri, which we, which we you know, basically whisper our secrets to, you know? and then we have um, devices like, we've even got like the internet of things connecting sex toys to, to databases. You know, everything that you can imagine that's out there is collecting data on us. And we're sort of letting these things into our lives and they're creating, essentially creating these much bigger pictures, more intimate pictures of what we do and what we are and who we know and who we love and what we behave like and what we prefer. All of these things being put together into these incredibly huge databases, which are then packaged up and sold to advertisers. Of course, not just to advertisers, final comment on this, also of yes. course, to the state and to state security services when, and you know, when that becomes necessary. I'm not gonna say the NSA and CSEC and everything is watching us all the time through this method because they're not, but it certainly allows them the potential to be able to get very deep into people's lives in a way that they weren't mm -hmm. before. So as a, as a sociologist, as a, as a scholar in sociology, David, what are the takeaways for average everyday Facebook users who aren't academics and just like to be able to talk to their grandmother or their pals across the city or across the world? Well, it's a really difficult one. I mean, you know, on the one hand, keep talking to your friends and family, right? There's no, nobody saying you shouldn't do that. Um, although some people have said there has been a campaign to kind of get people off Facebook, say, you know, just close down Facebook, don't use it. But then the problem is, is what's the alternative? Um, for many people, Facebook is in such a preeminent position that it's very difficult to even think about what the possible alternatives to this are. If you leave Facebook and all your friends are still on it, you know, you're basically, you, you've made yourself into a social pariah, right? You're outside of, you know, of society in some senses. It's like saying, you know, in, in you know, the pre-social media days, I don't like this town, I'm gonna leave and live in the woods. Mm -hmm. um you could mm -hmm. do that right and people occasionally did but like this your friends aren't going to come and join you in the woods mm -hmm. necessarily and this is the same problem right now so that that is the that's one of the huge issues here is what, what we do about it and I, I mentioned earlier on very quick very briefly about this is 
the biggest problem we have now is Facebook and Google and others are now so big that establishing an alternative, you know, from the bottom up, rebuilding a new social media network, if it's a cooperative, if you could imagine a cooperative, bottom up built social media network created by us, right? If you could imagine such a thing, getting that to the scale of Facebook from now is almost unimaginable, right? Being able to do that is almost unimaginable. Um, it seems very hard. So other options, like could we take over Facebook? If we can't beat Facebook, maybe we should join it to, you know, to take it over. That also seems very hard because Facebook, you can't, Facebook is operated on the behalf of shareholders and there's nothing that members and users of Facebook can do in terms of power. They have no democratic vote. There is no accountability. Um, it's not even a shareholder democracy. It's purely a kind of, uh, it's purely a capitalist corporation. So it seems very difficult to know what to do about any of these corporations. So the solutions that some people are advocating, people like Frances Haugen is not advocating this, and she still says Facebook should be, should be what it is. It should just mm -hmm. be better. But there are other people saying, well, maybe we have to nationalize these platforms. Hmm. Maybe we have to go back to a, you know, a kind of old fashioned nation state centered thing and say, well, if they're not gonna play ball, we're gonna break them up. And we're gonna, but then the kind of worlds of, you know, the, the global scope of Facebook is one of the main reasons why it's such an attractive and useful proposition. And if it stops being a global uh, sort of, you know, platform, then it's really not useful in any way for most, for a lot of people, right? It becomes just a sort of little Canada or little Britain kind <laughs> of thing where you can, you can communicate within a certain sort of range, but you can no longer have connections to people in, you know, China or Australia or anything like well, that. Well, I, I, I was marveling a couple of weeks ago, actually, with my partner when we were at home, we were on our deck, and we saw our, our local group of street youth uh, riding around on their BMXs, uh, which I recall doing with my own friends 30 years ago before the internet even existed. You'd knock on the door and say, hey, can Timmy come out and play? That's how we sort of, <laughs> but that's how we interacted and we rode around on our bikes and, and, uh, and, and this is, and this is just how we interacted and, and got to go out and play with our friends and actually interact in person. And, and a lot of the focus has been on the Capitol Hill discussions about protecting kids online, certainly, but mm. how social media has itself changed the way that children and youth interact with each other. There are memes all over the internet now that, you know, I chuckle at when, how dare somebody phone you anymore? Because nobody yeah. ever calls anybody anymore. They just message somebody through Facebook or, uh, but, and you certainly don't show up at somebody's house. You send them a Facebook message. That's just sort of a, a common everyday thing. So what is, yeah, what is the impact then of Facebook and, and the, the, the platform's social media platforms then just on that uh, everyday youth interaction and also in that regard ensuring that youth and children can interact safely as well if we're thinking about things like online bullying etc cetera, etc cetera. what are your thoughts oh i have lots of thoughts and i think it's a very complicated issue and in some ways you know i'm not i'm not the expert on childhood and, and the internet. I mean, there are some really great mm -hmm. people out there, but I can try and summarize at least what, what some people have said. Um, and this is one of the main motivators for Zuboff, actually, for Shoshana Zuboff, is, is very much the concern over the future of youth. 
I mean, to the extent that some of this is a bit, you know, would someone think of the children <laughs> kind of thing, which is, a, you know, I, I think there is a bit of a hand-waving thing for some of this, where it's like, you know, we've always been concerned about children and the future of our children and are our children in danger, right? This is not new. Um, and I remember reading a, a really frightening and brilliant sociology or sociological journalist sort of book back in Britain um, called Dark Hearts. And this was talking about the way in which, you know, for example, child prostitution works in, in, in both most of the 20th century in Britain and how kids were abused in all kinds of numerous ways in, in, every day, almost in plain sight, and nobody did anything about it. So the idea, first of all, that somehow children used to be in a sort of paradise where, you know, as you're saying, they could ride their BMXs without fear and whatever, and now it's terrible because of social media. That's not true. I think the thing to bear in mind is that in some ways the position of children and, and the attention to the rights and welfare of children in our society has got much better, much better in the last 50 years, in the last, especially in the last, you know, mm -hmm. in the last period. So I think the first thing to bear in mind is it's not always as bad as people say it is overall. If there is a concern about, you know, bullying and interaction online, yeah, it's, it's definitely something we take seriously. But it's, the answer is not necessary to say, well, we need to go back to how it used to be when there wasn't social media. Because um, social media has also given children, especially lonely children and children who have, um, you know, interests that are not like others in their peer group, the ability to contact and connect with people all around the world and to find themselves and find their peer group and find the things that they love, you know, and you wouldn't see, you wouldn't have seen the explosion of interest in Japanese manga and anime, for example, or Korean K-pop or any of these other things worldwide without social media, right? These are things that have been shared between kids around the world um, through these systems. And I'm not gonna come on here and say those things are worthless and people mm -hmm. don't need them, right? Youth cultures are always what they are. Um, so I think that's one thing to say, but I think the most important thing to say is that a lot of these systems are not designed for kids and, and kids have not been planned into them or thought about. Um, and the idea that children, for example, should be available for the exploitation of social media companies is profoundly disturbing. So for me, I think the answer is that if we could develop methods and law which protects kids uh, from the exploitation of social media companies while allowing them some measure of the things that are good about them, then that would be a much better thing. I think that's definitely within the ability of those companies to provide that service if they, if mm -hmm. they were able to. In fact, and if they don't want to, then I think legislation regulation is the answer. In North America, we have a real fear of, you know, like regulating. But like if you look at the European Union, the General Data Protection Regulation, uh, uh, which is developed from 2016, and the, the AI regulation, which is coming soon, really stick it to social media platforms and, and tech companies. They tell them what they can and cannot do. And you know what? They have to comply because they cannot ignore the market of the European Union. And so it's really changing social media companies already. Um, but I think also we could do much better than this. You know, there was a time when, when Canadian regulators were not afraid to tell Facebook what to do in the past. And that seems to be a time that's long gone, but I think we could get back to that situation where governments, I'm not talking about breaking up social media here, but governments regulate. They say, this is what we want to happen on social media and this is what we don't mm -hmm. want to happen. We do not want this to be a place for child child exploitation, and so these are the measures that we want. We you know we demand put into place. Otherwise, you will not be able to operate in this hmm. country. Okay, lots of food for thought there, David. Wow. Um, 
Okay. So I'm just thinking along the lines now of even just on an everyday basis, again, for everyday users experiencing what they see on Facebook, they not only see, you know, what their friends are up to, but as an example, uh, earlier this summer, I purchased a name brand ice cream from a supermarket using my credit cards, uh, name brand ice cream that I hadn't purchased in probably 10 years. And then within a few mm-hmm. hours, advertisements were showing up in my Facebook with that specific brand yep. of ice cream, which I like, I just bought it. Why are you advertising this to me? But the way well, that the algorithms work are kind of intriguing in all of this, uh, in this particular model as well, because I understand that algorithms for Facebook also work on the number of clicks, uh, particular uh, news organizations or different organizations receive, depending on how inflammatory perhaps the content may be. And, and this is where we're seeing particularly a lot of difficulty perhaps when it comes to uh, undermining democratic process and the rise of hate groups on the internet as well. Uh, Can you comment further on how these algorithms work and how they impact uh, daily life on social media? Yeah, well, there's two different things that I think that that come out and I want to talk Mm -hmm. about both of them. I'll get back to the algorithms and politics in a minute, but the first thing to deal with, first thing to deal with is the, um, is your ice cream. (laughs) And, um, I mean, this is a classic thing, right? So you know, this is what gives rise to some of the recent conspiracy theories, because somebody somebody will say, well, I was talking to my friend about ice cream in front of Facebook, and now I'm getting adverts for ice cream. But what you've pointed out clearly is that you went and bought this ice cream with yeah. a credit card. And that that interaction and that transaction is the yeah. crucial thing, because credit card data is, you know, that that is also out there sold and packaged up in all these kind of ways. And so we've got to remember that it's not just Facebook and Google and these companies involved in this system you know there is a whole architecture of marketing out there already you know and everything to do with credit cards and debit cards and banks and all this kind of stuff it's no longer the world of kind of you know quiet confidentiality that it was you know 60 years ago where you know you, nobody knows how much money you've got in the bank or what you do with it and your bank manager is incredibly discreet that mm-hmm. those days are gone long time ago so you know your credit card speaks and it speaks openly and people listen and mm-hmm. they record in that sense. So, you know, that data is also going into the same kinds of, uh, of kind of databases and being packaged up with all the other things. And so it's not surprising you're getting adverts for, adverts for those kind of things straight away after you've gone and bought this particular ice cream brand, Ben and Jerry's or whatever it was. Um, in, 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 I in, shan't yeah, announce it. I don't know who's before. listening. <laughs> <laughs> It doesn't matter now, like they already know, so um, it's too late. Um, uh, uh, so anyway, that's, um, and I don't, well, you, I don't know you well enough to make some kind of predictive, you know, outcome here, so I could, otherwise I could use my, my mystic marketing skills, right? Um, anyway, so this is, this is how well they know us, three. this is how they know us and how well they know us through these kind of systems. And this is, you know, it's absolutely, sort of, society is riddled with these sorts of systems and it's so it's not just facebook mm-hmm. not just google and so when you think there's some kind of conspiracy against you to, to unveil your secrets it's not because facebook knows it's because there are all these other systems that we aren't even thinking about that are also collecting so much data on us and they they sort of eventually find their way together and not even eventually mm-hmm. very quickly and, and then there we are so that's 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 the story of the ice cream i guess i mean the algorithm and politics question is another huge thing i mean i don't think and I may get into trouble with some of my colleagues here. 
but I don't think that Facebook or anyone else has an interest in encouraging right-wing extremism or any other kind of hate. Uh, some people seem to think that Mark Zuckerberg has some kind of personal interest in encouraging this. Um, I really don't think so. Mark Zuckerberg's politics are an interesting question. I've written a paper about them actually, as it happens. Uh, but I think he's broadly speaking, you know, quite mainstream centrist sort of, you know, center right sort of person with rather boring politics. Um, I think he was appalled by the election of Donald Trump, despite the fact he did try to influence him later and did try to kind of, you know, make some connections there because obviously he's the president and his government is in charge and Facebook has to be, you know, has to be have some kind of involvement with, with making sure the government, you know, has some responsive policies towards it. But I, I think he was actually quite appalled by the election of Donald Trump and he has, he has quite, if you like, um, that sort of American liberal democratic views of the world. So he really sees Facebook as being something that's about bringing the world together. He says creating global mm -hmm. community in some vague way. Like, so I don't think he's actually personally interested in, in the far right or in encouraging hate speech, but completely the opposite, in fact. On the other hand, that's not really the question we should be asking in some senses. It's like, how do Facebook's algorithms, the systems which it has for driving people into certain directions, you know, assigning different people different qualities and offering people different sorts of services. How do these algorithms end up sending people who would otherwise not be interested in things like hate speech and the far right into those kinds of dark mm -hmm. corners? Um, and that's really, really difficult. There, have been, there has been some work done on this and Frances Haugen apparently has more to say about this. We're told that she's actually gonna reveal more about this kind of stuff. Um, but one of the reasons is I think a lot of the algorithms are probably set, as you say, just to respond to what seems to be the most motivating, you know, click, whatever it is, and what causes the most clicks. Um, and it just gives you more of that. And it tries to send you a little more extremely down the same way, the more that that happens. It's not just Facebook, YouTube does this mm -hmm. a lot. And I've had a big problem, well, my family's had a big problem with my aging, um, uh, father-in-law who spends his time watching things online as he's getting old now and if he, he has found that you know that he gets sent down these rabbit holes where he's increasingly offered right-wing material which gets more right-wing the more he presses on it and he doesn't know how to deal with this he's not grown up in the age of the internet and he doesn't know the difference between what's real in terms of news and what's fake and so that's one of the biggest problems is that there's a really hard decision to be made about whether we allow these systems to function just to drive people's supposed interests in a kind of completely neutral consumer way, which of course we know is not neutral at all, or whether we try to do something that's a bit more socially engineering. And of course that's a bad yeah. word for some <laughs> people, right? Um, do we want to restrict what people can see? Do we want to restrict the way in which they see things? Do we want to you know, drive people down different routes that they might not have actually wanted to, but maybe they need to, to go. And this is really hard, right? Because, you know, when you're asked the question that way, it's quite complicated. So do, do we want to actually make, allow social media or make social media, for example, stop showing people right-wing content? Well, actually some people on the right would say, there's nothing wrong with our content just because you think it's racist and you think it's bad. Um, you know, why should you make the decision, right? This is a political question, not a, yeah, you know, not some kind of a consumer question. Or a human rights question. 
a human rights question, but human rights is a dirty word for these people. Yes, <laughs> <Like, indeed. laughs> but um, you know, but the, the point is exactly this: it's right. Is it, is it freedom of speech? Another whole thing. I, I specifically tried to avoid using that term earlier on because because that gets too fraught in the sense that you know that, that's very difficult to deal with in some contexts. But yeah, it's a very very difficult question. And you know, what should an algorithm show you? You know, when you ask like, what does an algorithm do? Why does it show bad things? The other question is, well, what should it show you? But also to the question of what content is just allowed, period, on Facebook. I remember a few yes. years ago, uh, quite a lot of complaints uh, uh, about uh, various women putting forward complaints uh, because their photos breastfeeding their children have been taken down from the internet. Meanwhile, there are groups that anti-Muslim groups, uh, uh, um, yep. <laughs> race, just otherwise just white supremacist yep. groups being able to say whatever they want on their yep. site, but, yep. a, but really a person different. saying, look at my me and my new baby, here I am breastfeeding my child, and they're removed because that content by Facebook is deemed inappropriate, but the other content is not. Is that an algorithm or well, is that somebody making a decision? There's two things going on here. One of the things is I think we overestimate sometimes the amount of uh, influence that algorithms might have. And there are indeed still armies of badly paid people doing content yeah. moderation, as it's called, in poorer countries of the world, so often in the Philippines or in India, and they're paid very low wages compared to what we'd expect in the West to go through you know, photos and literally vet them and say, this one is okay and this one isn't. And they get, I mean, this is a horrible and traumatic job because they're, first of all, they are exposed to the most vile things, the things that we never get to see on social media because they've already you know, filtered mm -hmm. it out of the way. Um, but you know, the most disgusting stuff and their, their daily job is like looking at this stuff and saying, is this disgusting mm -hmm. enough? Is this terrible enough for us to remove? And so, you know, there's, there's that. And I think there's a certain kind of privileged critique that emerges in the West about, oh, isn't it terrible they stopped me seeing, you know, my child and, and me breastfeeding, but, you know, which is, which is bad, but, you know, you've got to understand that that may, decision may have been made by somebody in India, an overworked, underpaid person who was just trying to make sure there wasn't sexual content on Facebook, because that's what they've been told to deal with. And in their culture, in their experience, you know, women don't, expose their breasts in public and that's sexual. So whatever they, you know, and it's a different thing. I'm just making up the actual context. I don't know that it's true, but you know, that's the kind of thing that we tend to assume this is a computer making mm -hmm. a decision. But it might be, it might be these very poorly paid content moderators. Um, and, you know, I have every sympathy with those people and I'm not gonna start to condemn those decisions just because it makes one or other um, person uncomfortable in the West. But on the other hand, you know, we've got to get better ways of doing this because you're right. You know, if, if we have a prohibition on, you know, say sexually exploitative material on, on, on a social media platform, how, how do we determine what constitutes some kind of free and consensual sexual material and what constitutes some kind of exploitative material, you know, just in terms of what the picture is, you know, do you know the picture's provenance? Do you know its history? This is one of the problems we're trying to detect things like revenge porn, mm -hmm. for example. It's a huge, huge issue, but it's very difficult to actually detect and say this is definitely revenge porn because, you know, that may be just some very small personal picture that somebody's taken. It looks perfectly innocent and it doesn't even fit the categories of exploitation or other kinds of things that you mm -hmm. might be looking for. Um, and so 
if human beings can't determine this, it doesn't mean that algorithms can, because the algorithms, all they're embodying is human decisions about those things that are then generalized and put into a program. So that's all the algorithms are, right? Somebody saying, well, if X is this, then Y? And you've already decided what X is at the beginning. So it's still a human decision. It's just then embedded in the program. Well, I've just, yeah, I've, I've often wondered, and I wonder still on a day-to-day basis, like I myself have made you know, uh, a complain made a complaint saying this yeah. is an inappropriate content. I've I saw this post or I've seen this thing that showed up, and it's just saying stuff that's yeah. otherwise like weird stuff about you know white power, white power to uh, yeah. other content. I've uh, and something I've made a complaint about before. It was a, a a site that seemed to be dedicated to outing the addresses of people. Uh, by other people in the neighborhood who thinks, uh, you know, this or that house might be a meth house and we should, you know, uh, have some more police attention on that, that kind of thing. You know, like, that's inappropriate. You don't know what's going on necessarily in in a particular home, but it also just seems really isolating and a little bit bullying, but it wasn't deemed inappropriate by Facebook either. I don't know if, the, if those sites necessarily or yeah. those pages necessarily exist anymore. I don't know. But nevertheless. Maybe not. Maybe not. I mean, but you know, it's been it's been a it's been a sort of feature of local communities for yeah. centuries that people gossip and make false allegations against people and you know have ideas about you know that person who lives in that house. And this is, you know, I guess the thing that social media allows is for those things to circulate on the internet more broadly. And for those, you know, things that would have been transient forms of gossip to maintain a sort mm-hmm. of permanence. And that's a huge problem. You know, it doesn't go away necessarily. And this is, of course, why Google has been involved in a lot of uh, fights in Europe again, because of the general data protection regulation over what's called the right to be forgotten. So if something that is a false allegation or you know, information that isn't true is circulated on the internet, in Europe, at least, you can petition to have this removed mm-hmm. from the internet. I mean, that seems for some people like the opposite of what the internet is supposed to be for. But for me, that's really important, you know, especially when you have this situation, as you're saying, if you're, if you're living in that house that people are saying was a meth house and it just happened to be, it wasn't, it just happened to be, or even if it was, it doesn't really matter. And like 10 years later, you're living a perfectly clean, normal life. And then somebody that associates you with this thing that's still on the internet. This, and you have, do you, is your whole life going to be conditioned by this for the rest yeah. of your life? And the argument, the argument the good, that the European Union makes is no, it shouldn't be. But also victimizing vulnerable people. If there yeah. are people in a meth house that are yeah. using meth and addicted yeah. to it, that's yeah. appalling treatment of people who are Absolutely. otherwise vulnerable. Absolutely, it is, and that's the same with you know a lot of these other questions about um, exploitative, you know, um, physical depictions too. Because then you get into a whole argument about things around. Um, body rights but also around sex work and lots of other different conversations and mm-hmm. you know you can't have those conversations by via algorithm yeah and and, and this is the end i think it brings us back to the place where we have to somehow bring these big social media platforms into a more deliberative conversation which involves you know accountability and democracy you know even if they are not accountable in democratic systems right now there must be some way of bringing them into those more accountable democratic and deliberative systems. And that's what I'm suggesting that when you when you want to turn to regulation and, and, and the appropriate regulators in each country to have some involvement, that's exactly the kind of thing that I think is where we might want to be going. Um, you know, it's, it's a very hard to say what exactly the outcome could be of that. 
And I, what I would hate to have is, for example, having sort of local monitors who decide, you know, in your street what is appropriate to say on your street about th- about things. Mm-hmm. And it, that seems almost worse. But, you know, you know, it would be nice to know that when you press that button saying this is inappropriate, there's something that's actually going to happen in a way that you, in which you could be involved and understand the process and know that there was some accountability, you know, and know that basically something was going to be done that would help the people that you're concerned about and not harm them through some knee-jerk reaction or some intrusive um, further sort of stigmatization, um, that, but that was actually done in the name of, of, of kind of, you know, helping, you know, helping the, you know, re- re- solving your complaint, for example. Mm. It's not much to ask in some ways, because that's what we want in a society in general, right? Indeed. All right. But, but it seems very hard to actually achieve. <laughs> All right. Well, we have covered so much ground today. Uh, anything else to add before we close today about Francis Hagen or Facebook or anything about surveillance studies in general, David? <laughs> well, I just think that, you know, for me, these little moments, were, you know, they really open up um, huge sort of uh, avenues into some of these very, very difficult questions. And I, I'm really delighted to have had this conversation with you because it always is you know, a pleasure to talk about these things in a bit more of the kind of free and soundbite-free kind of ways that we, we don't normally get to do so on, on, on when we're on TV or radio. So thanks very much. Well, thank you for giving us so much of uh, your valuable time and certainly valuable insights. Uh, we learned quite a lot from you today. Folks, we have been chatting with Dr. David Murakami Wood, Associate Professor in Sociology and Director of Surveillance Studies Center here at Queen's University. Uh, we've been chatting all about Francis Hogan's testimony and the implications of it on Capitol Hill on October 5th. David, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this podcast produced at CFRC 101.9 FM at Queen's University, situated on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples and brought to you by the generous support of the Faculty of Engineering and Applied Science.